Hey, everyone. You're listening to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and uh, I know it's been a while, but I think we have a good episode in store for you today. I have uh, returning guest, Tura. Hey, how you doing, Ryan? Also joining us is his partner, Evie. Hi. And today we are talking about uh, an anime that we were just coincidentally watching at the same time, which is Monster. Um, what, what made you guys start watching it? It's one of my all-time favorites. I read it a long, long time ago, um, and then I watched it slightly less long time ago. Uh, and then, I don't know, it's been like years now, I've been trying to get her to watch it. Um, it's a tough watch, <laughs> you know, there's some heavy content mm-hmm. and stuff that's hard to just sit with and power through um, some of the time. But like, I really enjoyed it and was just trying to get her to watch it, and finally... We did. We just started it, and she stuck with it. Like it was engaging. Was it like uh, you you ran out of shows to watch, so you you finally gave in? <laughs> no, I think it was just I was anxious about watching something that was going to be that that heavy. Um, True. Tura gave me like a, a little bit of insight without spoiling anything, um, and I was like, mm, I'm not quite ready to watch that right now. Um, but <laughs> so we took it one episode at a time. Um, and I really liked it. And once you get a few episodes in, you just get completely sucked into the world. And I think we binge watched it. <laughs> yeah, we binged it pretty hard. I don't know if you two have the same experience, but I do feel like in the last like five years or so, I have been a lot less inclined to watch anything that isn't like stupid action or comedy and kind of avoid like serious or dramatic stuff more. Like I used to watch all kinds of heavy movies and TV shows in the, like in the two thousands, especially. I definitely used to watch more heavy stuff. Yeah. That's not something I think I would like start new these days. Yeah. That's an interesting question. We literally finished watching Schitt's Creek before we went to monster. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, we were riding that levity train for a little bit. Yeah. I have like a bunch of like serious things on my list of stuff I have been planning to watch or read and I've just never gotten to it. Like I used to think of nothing of watching like something like city of God. That's like really dark and heavy throughout the whole thing. And um, yeah, now I just watch like trailer park boys (laughs) and always sunny and shit. (laughs) Maybe the world's just too much for, uh, you know, adding any, any additional stress to it or something. I yeah, I think that's kind of how it is when things get darker in the real world. You sort of want to not involve yourself in equally or worse uh, dark fictional worlds. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to watch people get in a giant robot and complain about how their job piloting the giant robot sucks. <laughs> 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 that's a real show, by the way. It's called Die Guard. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounded kind of like Mega's XLR, which is American, or... Um... I don't know. I used to watch Gundam when I was really little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this is like Gundam, but uh, if it were like a real job <laughs> that, you know, sucks because it's work. <laughs> True. True. I uh, actually, I made a video last weekend that got uh, a copyright notification on it because I used footage from that show. So I'm, it's like fresh in my mind right now. <laughs> anyway.
All right, so um, I'm just going to talk about the production a little bit of Monster. The original series uh, was published between 1994 and 2001. Um, it was a it was a manga, and apparently there's a like a book that uh, it was adopted from. I'm not clear on that, but one of the videos I was watching was saying that like there's another book called Monster that's about like an investigator, and the Johan arc was kind of like a side story in that. Oh. And Urasawa, like, adopted it. Hmm. But then I also saw that uh, it was inspired by The Fugitive, the American TV show. Yeah, with Tenda being on the run the whole time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I didn't even, I didn't even think about that until I was, like, reading this stuff. And I was like, damn, Tenma is Dr. Kimball. <laughs> Did either of you watch the TV show? I've only seen the movies. I am vaguely familiar with it. I haven't really watched much of it. Don't think Evie has. Mm-mm. The Fugitive movie with um, Tommy Lee Jones and uh, Harrison Ford is great. Um, and I've heard the TV show is good, too, but I have not seen that one. So, yeah, the manga was written by Naoki Urasawa, uh, who's written quite a few series. He was working on multiple series at the same time, like, at multiple points through his career, which seems... Like, just writing one manga sounds so stressful, and having multiple going at the same time is, is crazy. Um, so he's written, uh, his, like, most famous works are Yawada, which is a manga about women's judo, which sounds kind of cool. Uh, 20th Century Boys, which is, like, a seinen story. It sounds like a very convoluted plot. Um, I think his most famous are uh, Master Keaton, which was a adventure manga that was also adopted into an anime and Billy Bat, which is uh, another seinen manga. Um, the, like the videos that I've watched about monster, a lot of them mention that Billy Bat series. So that, that one sounds like it would be, if, if you like monster might be the best one to, uh, look into after, uh, finishing it. Um, Urasawa was also a musician, <laughs> which, uh, he he does like folk type music, and he performed at one point under the name Bob Lennon, like <laughs> John Lennon and Bob Dylan, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> um, and uh, so he wrote Monster after like he wanted to write a medical drama basically, and his editor turned him down because he didn't think it would do well. Ha ha ha. Um, and apparently he. Pitched Yawada after being turned down as a joke, which was so funny about women's judo, Urasawa. Kind of fucked up, actually. Uh, but weirdly, it became, like, super popular, and, like, two years after it started, there was an actual, like, women's judo champion in Japan who, like, won the Olympics and uh, got a, a nickname after the main character of that series. Oh, wow. Which is pretty fun. Let's see, it was brought over to the U.S. in 2008, 2009, thereabouts. And apparently it was on the Sci-Fi channel. Oh. Which I completely missed. Hmm. Um, Anna Mondays on Sci-Fi. Look at that. Yeah. But but that was at like 11 o'clock at night, so not not exactly a primetime slot. Um, and uh, there were two potential live-action adaptations. 
but fortunately neither of them were made. One of them might have been okay because it was Guillermo del Toro. That could be cool. Guillermo del Toro wanted to do Monster? Yeah, yeah. He was trying to uh, sell it to HBO, but they turned him down. Oh, man, that would be really good. This is the worst timeline. I don't... <laughs> I would really... I would watch that. I would watch that the hell out of that. <laughs> I guess it could be good because there's not any, like, crazy anime stuff in it. You know, it's just like a, a normal story. Yeah, I mean, it's dramatic, but it's right? not wacky um, anime tropes and... There's no energy blasts or anything yeah. like that. <laughs> Which is weird, then, that it would end up on sci-fi. Like, it's just a, a mystery story. Why, why is that on sci-fi? Yeah, it wouldn't fit more in, like, one of the Cartoon Network slots, I guess. Well, maybe it's just because of the audience. Like, sci-fi viewers are probably older. Yeah, I guess that's true. It better worked for, like, Adult Swim, probably. Yeah, I mean, speaking as a, you know, former viewer of Adult Swim, I think maybe the problem is, like, uh, our brains are all fucked up and <laughs> would we'd find something like this boring. <laughs> Fair. I don't know. <laughs> um, so one one thing that I thought was really interesting was the anime was criticized for being too faithful to the manga, which I've never heard anyone say before. It it only adds supposedly a few scenes and removes nothing, and the manga was like basically the storyboard for the anime. Yeah, as someone who has read the manga, it is beat for beat. Um, like not every panel necessarily, but it, it's kind of ridiculous how accurate it is. Um, I took a trip to Japan a bit ago, and while I was there, I was kicking around some like used bookstores, and I found all of Monster on sale, the, all the volumes. Um, nice. It was clearly something that was like donated by the same person. Like three or four of the spines had like a continuous scratch along the back of them, and they were being sold for like a hundred yen a piece, like a wow. dollar each. So I just bought it and stuffed all these books in my suitcase. And I, I had a friend of mine that was traveling with me who is half Japanese, so he can read Japanese. And he, he was hanging out, but he's from, you know, our side of the pond. Um, and on the plane ride back, he read the entire series, all 12 <laughs> of these volumes, or more than 12. I don't remember how many Tankoban there is, but he just read them in like one sitting. Um, and then when he got home, he's like, I'm thinking about watching it. Um, and I told him, don't bother. You've got the whole thing already. So what he did is he watched a few key scenes, the, some really interesting ones near the middle, uh, and then the ending, um, and sort of got the the anime experience out of that. But he, he didn't feel any need to rewatch the whole thing because you don't miss anything. It's all it's all there. Yeah, I guess even like uh, I I sometimes prefer the anime adaptation, even if it's like extremely similar, because. I sometimes have a hard time following the action in manga. Yeah, I get that. I don't know if that's just a me problem. No, I like it too. And I was that's what I was going to ask you, Chura. If, um, you know, the story is the same, but you also have the color, you have the animation, you've got voices, you've got sound mm-hmm. effects, you know, like the, the introduction for um, the show is so atmospheric. Yeah. Yeah, the intro song where it sounds like it's done by Bjork. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but there's no screeching, so. That's true. Um, So, real quick, just speaking of of that, uh, just the last thing in the production section, and then we can uh, go back to uh, what we were talking about. The soundtrack was by Kuniaki Haishima, who did the soundtrack for the other series of Urasawa's that was adapted, Master Keaton, and also for uh, Blue Gender, Spriggan, Gazaraki, 
and most famously for Macross Zero, which is like the widely regarded as the best Macross series. And uh, then, of course, it has the kick-ass ending theme by David Sylvian of Japan, the band Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, I never got into Japan, so I actually recognized it because uh, he sang on a, on a very similar-sounding track, uh, Transit by Fennis, which I think could extremely easily just fit right into the anime with no modifications to it. Um, and I, I get that song stuck in my head, like, all the time now. But anyway... That was the uh, the first outro song, right? The and yeah, you come to yeah, that one. Yes, I loved that, and all of the the phrasing because I would sing along with it every time because we always watched the introduction and the ending songs, and um, it's so perfect. It re- it's really so perfect. This this is one of those series where you can easily do that. Like some shows, definitely the. Either the intro or the outro or both are like very jarring compared to the content of the show. <laughs> um, but this one fits perfectly. I think you're right about that. Yeah. And you kind of need them. I always, I told you, I always needed them to process after watching an episode. It was very helpful for me. Yeah. And you get those cool storybook pains on the outro, mm-hmm. which sort of yeah. slowly move through. You get like foreshadowing with that. I, I think that was an extremely well done um, like decision from a design perspective to have those storybook following you through the whole series. Yeah, both I think are like really ideal examples of what an anime theme should be. You know, both the the sound and the visuals of it. Cuz the opening like shows you like the setting and some of the characters and like what type of show it's going to be like and then the outro shows you like a lot of the the lore. Um Mhm. Yeah, which I think is perfect. Um, but so, yeah, back to uh, your friend reading the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I was going to say that's really impressive, but I don't know. Because isn't a flight like 18 hours? I guess that's still really impressive. Yeah. That's a lot of manga. <laughs> it was. He, he did it in like the first two-thirds of the flight. Like he finished and I had time to <laughs> debrief and discuss the whole thing. <laughs> Didn't even have a chance to take any of the content in. <laughs> Just blazed through it. <laughs> yeah. And at one point, like halfway through, he's like, God damn it. Why is this Lunga guy just following him around? This, this is awful. And I told him, like, just, just stick with it. Stick with the character. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is one thing that, like, uh, sometimes when I would watch a lot of episodes in a row really quickly, it was kind of easy to lose track of like who who the characters were or because they introduced so many characters yeah and just like what in general is happening like it is one of those series where like just showing someone on the screen is like shocking but it's very easy to forget who it is so like it's lost on you the same thing happened to me with attack on titan yeah they're like, oh my god, it's it's this person. And I'm like, oh damn, yeah, uh, that guy. <laughs> How did you find the pacing of Monster overall? I remember you making some comments about it as you were partway through. Um, so like now at the end, how how'd you find it? Um, I was trying to figure out if you were making a joke about my tweet about p- pacing yesterday, or if you were legit asking. So it sounds like you're actually asking. Um, I I did find it. 
slowed down a bit toward the end, but I think part of that is just um, maybe like missing the point the first go around. Um, like it's easy to focus on some of the more superficial details and not like try to put things together in your head. And so some of the stuff they're showing you seems like it's out of place or thrown together or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Especially on a a first watch. Um, Mm -hmm. What's interesting for me as someone who's seen it a few times now is um, all that detail and all these new characters. I forgot like a good half of these characters by the time I came back and rewatched it. So it was new to me and I sort of remembered and now I can fit those pieces back together, but there's a lot to process and follow with. Then you have all these characters coming back by the end and it's like, who who was that again? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a lot to keep track of. There's definitely a lot of rewatch value for that reason. I think there is. Yeah. Um, Evie, did you find it helpful to have someone with you that has seen or read the story more than once and could, like, explain things to you that were unclear? So there's a lot of shows that Tora and I will watch where Tora has seen it before and I have not. Uh And um, I like to theorize. It's not like I write anything down, but after we finish an episode, I'll... I'll talk to Tora and say, hmm, I think this is what's happening. Or And uh, Tora will smile, but, <laughs> won't, won't, but won't give anything away. Um, and so it's it's really fun for me to have this sounding board of somebody who knows what's going on and is really enjoying my theorizing and, and can relate to it because I'm sure you were doing that when you first were reading through. Yeah. Um, and so and I think that's really fun. Tora doesn't spoil anything, doesn't give anything away and just. Just smiles. Like, oh, oh God, Lunga. Tura just smiles. Now, do you prefer that or would you would you rather he just told you if you were right or not? Um, no, I don't I don't want to be told if I'm right or not. I wanna <laughs> I wanna find out for myself. Okay. And so it works for us. I think it's fun. Yeah, I I don't know, like on one hand, I do always want to know if I'm right or not. But I don't know if that would ruin it for me. I don't think it would because I, I'm usually okay with spoilers. So I think I might prefer just to know if I'm right or not. Because then if I'm wrong, if I know that I'm wrong, it makes it even more exciting. Like, oh, something's going to happen that I can't even predict. That's cool. <laughs> See, yeah, if someone was like following your your theorizing along the way and told you things are wrong as you go, then that is interesting because that opens the space for like what actually is there. But then as soon as, you know, you get one right and they say, yeah, you're right. Well, all that like mystery and exploration and building on it goes away. Kind of takes the wind out of your sails. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like to do it either way and and give things away. I prefer to just stay silent. That is definitely the safer option because some Mm -hmm. people, I think some people will get mad at you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then, and then we would have discussions once, mm-hmm. you know, whatever I was theorizing about once it happened and whether I was, I was right sometimes and wrong other times. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking about, you know, uh, Toro would finally reveal what Toro was thinking at that time, you know, when, uh, when he was watching it himself earlier. Uh, and it always, we always had really good discussions. We would talk for like 20, 30 minutes um, about that. Yeah. Watch like two or three episodes and then just debrief afterwards it was good yeah that sounds great that is definitely something that i was missing while watching this um we we talked a little bit but i i mean i blazed through the series in like i don't know two weeks yeah something like that i mean you could do it on one plane ride so yeah (laughs) 
Um, did you watch uh, sub or dub or both or neither? Uh, we watched the sub. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I started doing the sub, but then, um, you know, when I, when you have to like pay it really close attention, sometimes I find the subs make it a little harder because if you just like look away from the TV, then you might lose track of what's happening. That's the only time I think dubs are actually better. The acting wasn't the worst in the dub, actually. We tried the dub a couple times, and uh-huh. who was it? Was it Nina's voice really got on your nerves? <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even remember. I just really love Tenma's Japanese actor voice. The Japanese voice actor for Tenma is so... Uh, just It perfectly captures who Tenma is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to watch him in, in Japanese if I can. I, I agree with you though. It's hard to read the subs while, um, while trying to watch what's going on. So especially think, a story this convoluted. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, but because it's got so much rewatch value, I'm really not, con- I'm going to watch it again at mm-hmm. some point. Yeah. I was like, I don't remember what I was doing. I was, I was trying to do like some chore or something at the same time. And, uh, I just, I had to back it up every like 30 seconds when I, while I was watching the sub. So I was like, fuck it. I'll just sit through the dub. That's fine. <laughs> so I can recommend either. If if you have a hard time reading the subs, the dub is not unbearable to me, at least. So um, if you haven't seen it, both are good. Sub obviously has better acting. Um, but the dub is is doable. So... Do we want to talk about some of the like real life connections uh, to the show? I have one, and you have you have a bunch. So I'll I'll just get my one out of the way, which is about the eugenics experimentation stuff. Sure. Okay. Um, wherever you want to start, go ahead. I think this but this might be in the another monster thing. I got it off the wiki. Yeah, the wiki draws from that light novel a lot. Okay. So the. Apparently, the head of the former Czech secret police, um, I can't think of his name offhand, Chapik? No, that's um, Bonaparte's helper guy. Wolf was German, so that wasn't him. Another, one of those Czech names. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, He speculates that the, uh, like the funding for the eugenics experiments, which they mentioned multiple times, they have no idea who it was, um, came from... Actual real life weapons company Omnipole. Uh, it's a like a Czech defense company. And when I clicked through to their Wikipedia article, I found that they may have been involved in the Lockerbie bombing. Oh, like they they sold Semtex to Libya, which supposedly made its way to the people who blew up the flight over Lockerbie. Which is wild. Wow. Um, so that that's all I really have. But <laughs> did you find much else about like the concept of this Czech secret police? I, I looked around for some things on like Czech eugenics programs and stuff, um, and there was a society for that that seemed to be somewhat influential. But I didn't get much about what like the secret police was actually up to, or to what extent that was real, um, other than just being like policing in the USSR. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't look into that, but, uh, I searched it just now. There is a real 
agency called Statni Bezpechnost, um, which is state security. Okay. And it was this, a real secret police force. Um, I mean, it's just like an intelligence agency, I guess, basically. Okay, interesting. Um, it does see say here that the STB forced confessions by means of torture, including the use of psychoactive drugs, blackmail, and kidnapping. Um, and that developed under the tutelage of Soviet advisors after the 1948 coup. Okay, that lines up with a fair bit of what my research came up with. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, every everything in this series... I guess with the exception of like Johan's like superhuman ability to like convince people to die. Yeah. Um, is very realistic. Yeah. I don't think there's anything that's like totally outside of the realm of possibility. The, the one thing that stood out to me as like really improbable is um, I was kicking around on the wiki as well. And a few times that another monster uh, novel is mentioned and Franz Bonaparte in another monster apparently developed the ability to like hypnotize people and make them forget their names and therefore like lose themselves and lose their minds. Oh yeah. That's over the top. <laughs> he, he came up with that before he had ever like studied psychology. He just managed to do that when he was like 18 and did it to his father. <laughs> so like, that's a little out there. Okay. <laughs> Maybe they just really wanted to forget who they are and that's why it worked. He apparently did it to his father in revenge for stealing a woman that he loved. They both fell in love with the same woman. Interesting. And then that woman ran away, didn't stay with either of them, and her child ended up being Johan's father. So this stuff gets real detailed and <laughs> fancy. <laughs> yeah, and this is like pulled out of the light novel, which is, I think is considered canon, but it's also really weird because the author of the light novel, it was done in collaboration with Urasawa, but it's not Urasawa who wrote it, but the author oh, of the... Oh, okay. I read differently. Is it Urasawa? Because I, I read this thing that said this is the person who wrote it who was... I mean, you're probably right. I think it was just like his name was on it, so people assumed that he was the author. That might be it. The, the weird thing is it says that his name is there and he's Czech. He's an actual Czech person. Huh. And so I thought that he was someone that Urasawa had been like corresponding with doing research for, for his stuff, because he's obviously done a lot of research to get all this stuff um, figured out. And so I figured that's who it was. But then that person's name is also a character in the light novel. He's the protagonist. And so I don't know if that's a fictional person or if that's like a, a real person that he then just inserted into this light novel. I, I have no idea. Yeah, this is super confusing. I'm looking at the wiki now, too. <laughs> it says he's a freelance journalist who wrote another monster. He became interested in Johan's case because he has been working in another case that he's been following. Uh, the case, the Gustav Kotman axe murders, he claims was inspired by Johan's action 10 years before Kotman committed his serial killings. So this is already treating it diegetically as if this is a character in the world rather than in the real world. Yeah. So I, I don't know. <laughs> it's <laughs> wild. Uh, that's crazy. So, and it, it does list him as the author. Yeah. That, that is really confusing. And his name is on, like, the physical volumes. I, I bought a copy of it as well um, when I was right. in Japan. And I, I can't read it. <laughs> I, I did some Japanese, but it's not strong enough for that. But his name's just on it. And I, I don't know what that's about, if they're doing this sort of alternate reality game thing with that work. I, I don't know. Can either of you think of, like, another work where... 
one of the characters was listed as the author. That that's so strange. Only like uh, you know, like autobiographical stuff that I can think of. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like trippy. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're going to solve this mystery uh, <laughs> while we're talking here, but <laughs> it's something to look into. Join us next episode for a deep dive into another monster. Yeah. When we do all that research. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, let's start with your notes here. Okay. So there's a lot going on with Monster, with these orphanages, with these eugenics programs, with these super soldier programs. Very little of it aligns directly with what we see in Monster. Like, I didn't see any examples of um, orphanages that had the children of undesirables who were then being experimented upon to create super soldiers. Um, Yeah, it is pretty, like, heavily focused on just the Kinderheim people and the police and, like, their direct relatives. Yeah, and you have these intersections of, like, multiple programs where the original source of you know, Johan and Anna or Nina was this eugenics program in the Czech Republic. Um, and then they ended up escaped and ended up in these orphanages uh, that were a separate state program for research and <laughs> development of soldiers and perfect people, you know, or powerful people. Gotcha. I was a little confused about that. I didn't know if the eugenics program from like the earliest events was separate from the orphanage. So you're saying it is? Yeah, they um, okay. they escaped. Like the kids escaped at the Czech border and then got picked up by the Germans. Right. Um, and General Wolf took Johan, gave him the name, and they went from there. And that's how the kids ended up in these experimental orphanages in East Germany. Okay, gotcha. So yeah, they weren't supposed to be connected, but then like the white supremacist groups started looking into all the like the history where this miracle child came from, and then it all got. Um, tied together anyway. Okay. Yeah, it's a very complex story. <laughs> yeah. I've only watched it once, and I, w- I watched more of it uh, for the second time, like some of it for the second time uh, yesterday and today. So I definitely didn't catch all of the story details, but sorry, back to what you were saying. Yeah, so what do you want to start with? Um, experimentation to make super soldiers, eugenics programs, where should we go? Let's go in uh, story chronological order. So we'll start with state eugenics programs. All right. So I found an interesting article that describes a lawsuit against the Czech government specifically. So there were obviously eugenics programs in like Nazi Germany, Um, But there was one specifically in the Czech Republic more recently um, and Czechoslovakia before that. So numerous Romani women had been sterilized without consent, either without being asked at all whether they wanted this procedure or they signed documents about procedures that had not been properly explained and they didn't know that sterilization meant or like what they were told meant being unable to bear children thereafter. Mm Mm-hmm. So they had signed off a consent, but they didn't know what they were getting into. Um, Prior to November 1989, um, the Czech state had explicit eugenicist policies in place against Romani people. Um, They were promoting assimilation with these groups. um, And the measures, here's a quote, the measures included efforts by social services to control the birth rate in the Romani community to stop it presenting a social risk. 
Um, however, some of the cases that they were being sued for in this lawsuit occurred after 1990, which is after these assimilationist uh, sterilizing uh, legal uh, measures were gone, like they had been removed. Um, but the cases kept happening, and it was due to these doctor-patient interactions. So the doctors were just keeping on with the old policies, um, even after the, the laws had been removed. And then near the end of the article, it takes it jumps into this digression of the history of several what it calls eugenically-oriented social systems. And it talks about Sweden, Switzerland, and Czechoslovakia before you know the collapse of the USSR. And all three of these states made use of sterilization of various undesirables. Um, they were overwhelmingly performed on women, and particularly mentally disabled women and those of low social status. And there was a statistic where it was like, in one city, they had like 387 sterilizations performed, and 370 of them were on women. So it was very much like gendered violence as well. Um, then they give some details about each one. Uh, in the Swedish case, they viewed sterilization and eugenic like purification of these uh, populations as being a vital factor in maintaining a stable welfare state. So like they viewed their ability to care for and provide for their people, um, a key part of that was like this very good progressive way to take care of your citizens. Uh, you then had to get rid of the undesirables who parasitized on that good system. Um, Switzerland sterilized a lot of young women um, for, you know, the same reasons, being unable to care for your children or having some mental issue. Um, and in the early 2000s, there was a push to create a reparations program for those affected by earlier eugenic policies. Um, and they did outlaw sterilization in these um, in this push in the 2000s, but they rejected the proposal for reparations in Parliament um, because it would have basically made the entire state, the entire federation or whatever the like nation state label was, mm -hmm. would have made all of that culpable. And they didn't stand for that. They said, it wasn't all of us. It was just these bad people before. And so they um, cut out the reparations. And so the people got nothing. Um, in the Czechoslovak case, which is, you know, more relevant to what happened in Monster, there was a surprisingly powerful Czech eugenic society, which had institutional backing. They created a program that included the establishment of legal measures, allowing not only sterilization, that was their main form of action, but in addition to that, eugenic marriage revision, which means they would look you up and look up your history, and if they didn't find that you and your partner, your spouse, were of good breeding stock, of good genetic lineage, they would legally null your marriage and prevent you from uh, remaining together. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Good genetic lineage mean? I mean, it depends who you're talking to. In Germany, it was pretty flexible, blonde hair, blue eyes. In Czech, uh, Czechia, they tended to care more about having Czech lineage. Um, and I think there was also a push for like Slovak lineage, eugenics of like the other ethnic group that was in there. Um, but the Czech one seemed to be the strongest. Um, so that specific ethnic group was being prioritized. Uh, I have a quote from a Czech eugenics representative um, sort of tying in this appeal to like the welfare state and also like social conservatism against charity. Um, he said, charity is rightfully reproached for its blame in proliferating the inferior, in the de degeneration of mankind, 
that thousands of the abnormal who would have perished alone in dirty corners are preserved with care and love, while hundreds of thousands of the normal lack such love and care. So you see that same thing that um, Sweden was doing, where our ability to care for the normal and the worthy is impeded by caring for the abnormal. So we shouldn't do that, and we should sterilize anyone that doesn't conform. So that's the Czech stuff, and I also have some information about uh, German Nazi eugenics programs. It's so telling that their answer is not, well, we should fund the welfare to take care of the normal people, but we should sterilize the abnormal people instead. Yeah. I was surprised, like, reading this stuff, like these progressive states that take care of you are also the ones that are using that exact same reasoning to justify mass sterilization of, you know, undesirables. Yeah, there's that extremely accurate meme of um, Europeans when they're talking about anti-black racism in the U.S. and it's like MLK, and then Europeans when they're talking about Romani people and it's Hitler. (laughs) Yeah. But... I, I was trying to find it, but I, I wasn't able to just now. Um, I read a tweet like a couple of weeks ago where someone was saying – it was an indigenous woman. And I can't remember if it was in the U.S. or Canada. But she was saying that like she was forcibly sterilized by a doctor while she was like in a hospital f- for some other like unrelated thing. Um, they basically just like – anesthetized her and and like gave her a hysterectomy or something like that. Was that like recent, like 2017 or something? That rings a bell. I think yes. that was in Saskatchewan. So yeah. that was in Canada. Okay. Yeah. And the and the doctor just said, oh, uh indigenous women are too fertile, so we have to do this. <laughs> um so that stuff is like not stopped really. No. And I mean obviously there's like plenty of people out there who you know, don't see anything wrong with this other than maybe like, oh, uh, you know, we should do like voluntary eugenics or something instead. Voluntary sterilization. Yeah, that that goes well. Yeah, but it, it, it does seem like the attitude is still very present. It's just uh, maybe not uh, PR friendly enough to <laughs> yeah. be a, what was it, a eugenics check, eugenics representative? I've never heard of that title before. It was a representative of this Czech eugenic society. That's wild. And they like publicly propagandized the public. Like they had institutional funding to send messages out to the Czech public to promote their message. Like the government was on board with this. Yeah. Yeah. Genetics (laughs) is trying to move like really, really far away from all of the eugenics um, history. And so... Um, Were they more connected historically? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. if you think about it, like, um, I, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with it, but. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know if it was like um, like evolutionary biology where, you know, social Darwinism, like, wasn't exactly like, I don't know, co-committant. Is that the right term with with actual like evolutionary science? But, yeah, I didn't know whether eugenics and genetics were or not. That's more of a they were wrapped up from the beginning thing here. Yeah, we were. Yeah, because we we talk a lot about the forced sterilization and, and mm-hmm. particularly um, group like women with uh, intellectual differences. 
um, you know, like the nuance that you have to have in that counseling session and what, like, what is consent? Like the, the, we, we talk a lot about consent and, and, you know, if somebody wants to go undergo genetic testing or, um, particularly with like IVF and I don't know if you know, but there's like, it's called pre-implantation genetic testing. Um, so you can test the embryo to see if it has chromosomal differences. So chromosomal mm-hmm. differences are like uh, down syndrome or, um, you can also test for certain genetic conditions, like maybe the family, maybe the uh, the couple, the both partners are carriers of cystic fibrosis, and they don't want their child to have cystic fibrosis. So you can test the embryo for something like that. But um, that that kind of is is going in the line with you could argue that it, to some degree that's voluntary eugenics. You're selecting against certain embryos. Um, that you know some some individuals select against embryos that are suggestive to have down syndrome mm-hmm. um or uh some couples will select against um maybe they wanted a male they say i want a boy and they uh they get x only xx embryos in that round and they're like mm-hmm. mm, i don't want that i want xy so i'll do it again and until I get X, Y and that, that's sex selection. Um, so it's, it's still around. So do you have, do you have a, I, I don't know a ton about, um, eugenics. So do you know, like, uh, like what the ethical arguments are like for and against that type of selection? It's, it's muddy. <laughs> I mean, if it's too much, we, um, we don't have to go into it, but, uh, I was, I was curious. Yeah, ultimately, like what we're working off of now is that it's just it's the patient's choice, what whatever the patient wants to do, um, mm-hmm. because but there there are arguments, you know, like uh, the Down syndrome community, on the whole, um, argues about this this selection against the existence of individuals with Down syndrome. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's a big thing that's been coming about, and it's and it's hard, you know, um, and so. Right now, it's just like if that's the decision you want to make, it's your personal decision. Um, I guess part of the issue is like the medicalization of intellectual differences. Yeah. Like most most people would see um, selecting for someone who doesn't have Down syndrome and selecting for someone who doesn't have cystic fibrosis as like exactly equal basically. And so they wouldn't find anything wrong with either of those I think yeah I think it depends on the person yeah um and and it's not it's not just that too there's also a whole other host of considerations right um you know like the um the life expectancy of somebody with such an xyz condition or um the quality of life that they're going to have mm-hmm. um or um how expensive it's going to be some genetic conditions are super expensive too um support and you know at least in the u.s medical system (laughs) um, right as as those bills rack up like you can have families that go bankrupt um and so that's those are considerations too it's not just you know like the is this morally acceptable to to um implant this embryo or not there's there's a whole other host of considerations um that go into these things true okay well i don't have a ton to add 
Um, since, like I said, I'm, I'm not super familiar with eugenics. I know a lot of people on the Discord talk about it quite a bit, but it's usually like, uh, you know, big, long blocks of text that yeah. <laughs> I can't get into. But I, I was excited to bring her on because we're talking about these eugenics and the genetic tests, um, like background and heredity and ancestry stuff. Um, and then she's like, this is her career. This is her path. So yeah. she, she knows a lot about this. <laughs> So, Evie, did you have anything you wanted to add? I think, Tori, you said you had something about Nazi eugenics. I didn't, I didn't see that in here, but um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about that or... The, I don't really have anything else to add. It's just that, like, you know, the definition of eugenics, it's, <laughs> it's a messy one. Right. And um, uh, it's still probably around today. Yeah, it is, especially in, in behind closed doors dealing with minority populations, that kind of thing. And obviously, obviously, the eugenics in in this series were very heavily connected to like neo Nazi type stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they were selecting for German looking children. Yes. On that note, the Nazi state sponsored eugenics program that I researched this is almost certainly the inspiration for Franz Bonaparte's um, project to okay. you know bring together men and women of good stock, good racial stock, um, and produce these ideal children who would lead the future human race. Um, It was almost certainly inspired by this actual Nazi program called Lebensborn, which was started by Heinrich Himmler, who was the leader of the SS. And the program began using just members of the SS. They only accepted healthy applicants who could establish their Aryan ancestry. And it started out as... Um, encouraging racially elite SS members to have large families of at least four children. And in some cases, they provided financial assistance to the family. So in addition to you know getting your SS paycheck or whatever, they would give you additional support to keep having good racial children. Um, and SS members and their brides had to pass medical examinations and background checks concerning their family's racial and psychological history in order to be allowed to marry. So if you had any history of um, mental illness or um, mental differences, that was unacceptable. Um, Hereditary epilepsy came up. That was something that would disqualify you from this program. Um, You wouldn't be given support. The program, in addition to just like SS men, uh, targeted unmarried pregnant Aryan women. Aryan in quotes there because the standards for what counted as Aryan were pretty murky. Um, But they would find these women, provide financial support, and give adoption services and private maternity homes away from family and acquaintances in order to discourage abortions. So abortions were illegal in Nazi Germany, except when they were state-sponsored. There were uh, hereditary health courts that ordered abortions and sterilizations for undesirables, um, other ethnic groups. They they were a lot more um, heavy-handed with it, like anyone that wasn't the right kind of uh, German or blonde-haired, blue-eyed European would be, you know, up for being aborted or sterilized at that point. But outside of that, abortions were illegal, and also being married out of wedlock, or sorry, being pregnant out of wedlock was heavily, what do you call it, stigmatized. And right. so this program, which, you know, they were very socially conservative and wouldn't promote you getting pregnant out of wedlock, but they would give you a maternity home away from your family and acquaintances to promote you having the child after all so that the program could take the child um, away from like prying eyes of family and friends and acquaintances. 
Okay, that that makes sense. I was I was a little confused how a private maternity home would discourage abortion, but um, yeah, when you connect it to, they're going to take the child away. That that makes yeah. makes sense. <laughs> in I'm, I think in most of those cases, they would take the child and then they would place the woman back, you know, with the fam or wherever she had come from, um, to minimize that stigma. But then the program has one more child to work. I wonder if they also hired writers to come up with stories of where they were for nine months. <laughs> yeah. I think they only needed to do that for the last few months when it's like really visible. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they had this whole thing on taking these women away so that they could have this child in secret. Um, later on, in, so originally it was just about having more children with Aryan ancestry, right? Like that was their purpose, getting these, they considered the SS to be the elite, the um, intellectual and racial superiors. So then we want to promote having a, as many children as possible among that group. But later on in the war, um, there were concerns of losing too many racially valuable soldiers. They were obviously losing a lot of men in the war. And so Himmler started looking for other sources of children. And so in occupied territories, German forces impregnated foreign women. And the the children were taken by the program. So they were being encouraged to essentially rape these women um, in order to have more children that were at least partially racially perfect Um, And they would then be taken in by this program. Additionally, thousands and thousands of foreign children who had German ancestry or just showed what, quote, appropriate racial features, which meant blonde haired and blue eyed. And it didn't matter in what part of like the occupied territory you were in. If you saw a kid like that, they could be snatched up. And these kids were kidnapped and placed with German families. And apparently the families in this part of the program weren't even told that the children were part of any eugenics program. They were just told that these children had been orphaned by the war. Um, And children were mostly taken from Eastern and Southeastern Europe, areas like Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, uh, when that was occupied. And an estimated 7,000 children were born into Lebensborn, this program, the homes for that. And many more than that were kidnapped from occupied territories but numbers are extremely hard to establish by now. Um, and so this original sort of conception of Lebensborn as being, let's find ideal men and women among the SS and have them breed to have good children, um, that's almost certainly where Urasawa got his idea for Franz Bonaparte's uh, breeding program that he started up in the Czech Republic. There's like so many parallels, like with various parts of this that you described to, I mean, Tons of different things, like uh, taking the children of undesirables and foreigners and rehoming them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds exactly like you know taking indigenous children in the U.S. and um, or or black children and having them adopted by white families. Yep. The encouragement of procreation has parallels to like modern Japan. I don't think they have like necessarily programs that like give people a ton of resources for that. But I do know that like low birth rates is seen as like a huge problem in Japan by the right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I I also just think it's generally interesting, like how much birth rates are a focus in white supremacy and, and other forms of racism. Like, Oh, the other thing I was thinking of was, uh, Matt Iglesias talking about how we need to have a billion Americans. Wow. (laughs) Stupidest man on the planet, Matt Iglesias. 
Um, like, uh, I, I forget where it was, but I was, I was talking earlier about borders and how like borders and, um, like white genocide are pretty heavily connected because like, that's the whole, uh, reason for this encouragement of birth rates is the idea of like white genocide that Mm -hmm. demographic shift. Yeah. Either through like low birth rates or like in the more insane version, I guess, uh, like literally murdering white people, um, that non-whites are going to like take over white societies and ruin them with their non-whiteness. Um, and, and yeah, like, I mean, most of the arguments in favor of borders are like explicitly like related to that. Like, we're going to be taken over by immigrants or um, we are being taken over by immigrants. It's yeah. so funny because America is a country of immigrants. Yeah, don't tell the Americans that. <laughs> <laughs> Racially valuable soldiers is a very interesting phrase. Yes, that was one that I pulled out as a quote. Now, do they mean like literal? They mean like literal soldiers, right? Yes, I, it okay. was the the men fighting and dying in the war that they were worried about losing, because they believed the Aryan race to not to be physically and intellectually superior. So right. the best soldiers are the ones going out. They're the, the stronger the fighter they are. That's also an indicator of their value in racial terms. So then your best soldiers are going out and dying, and then they're not reproducing, and that's a problem. So if they're the best, shouldn't they not die? Yeah, the reason I wasn't sure is because. Uh, I don't know if you know who Tariq Nasheed is. He's like a, um, I guess a, he's sort of a pundit, but he's like a very pro-black pundit. And he he calls cops and other like random bystanders that do like cop shit uh, race soldiers usually. Race soldiers? Yeah. Because they're usually, you know, either – policing or um, just directly like fighting, doing violence against black people um, in in service of whiteness. So I thought there might be a, a double meaning there of racially valuable soldiers, but yeah, it's just literal. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think it works. It's racially value in their like Aryan eugenic terms. Um, yeah. And I was also, I was even thinking like while you were explaining it, like, Oh, why didn't they just have the, you know, undesirables go fight, but you answered that as well. There's an anime out now uh, for the spring 2021 season called 86. I didn't think it was... I watched the first, like, three or four episodes, and I didn't like it, but the concept was sort of similar to that. Um, They were in this, like, Aryan sort of empire, like, Nazi-German sort of empire, and... um, they were fighting a war that was supposedly fought with drones, but the drones were actually just like mechs piloted by their undesirables. And the main character was like one of the people who basically directs the, the so-called drones. And she was like the only person who thought it was like bad to do that. Kind of an Ender's game situation. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't have anything else to add for the, Nazi eugenic stuff. 
The other stuff I did research into was super soldier programs, which were okay. sometimes connected to the eugenic stuff, but rarely directly there. So Monster sort of mashes all that stuff together. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Nazi Germany was pretty well known for doing things to uh, develop super soldiers. Um, some of their biggest ones were using drugs. Um, there's a interesting book uh, about that. I it was called Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich by Norman Oler. Good book. Um, talks about all sorts of things that they did and tried with that. Um, but they used drugs to enhance their soldiers' performance. Um, they mm-hmm. also did things like, you know, interrogating people under uh, drugs, which is the same thing that the CIA did, MKUltra, all that. And the Czech secret police, as we just found out. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, but this, like, using drugs for their soldiers was a big thing. Um in 1940, they had this pharmaceutical that they developed called Pervitin, which is just methamphetamine. It's it's crystal meth. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, and they found that it reduces fear, it reduces your need to sleep, and it makes you more aggressive. Uh, and these three reasons seemed perfect for the German army in 1940. That's a quote from Blitzt, or from Norman Oler. I, I quoted him in a video, but I think that line comes directly out of the book as well. Um then, after they'd figured out Pervitin worked for that, they created a cocktail, um, and it was Pervitin, cocaine, and oxycodone as a painkiller. Those together made a super drug. Have you ever heard of D9? No, I don't think I have. It's written D-I-X, but I think it's right. pronounced D9. Um, yeah, and- I thought it was pronounced Dix. <laughs> <laughs> So their purpose here was to provide superhuman endurance. And they tested this out on prisoners in concentration camps, uh, Sachsenhausen specifically. And so they took test subjects, gave them this D9, and they found that subjects could march for up to 90 kilometers in a day without rest while carrying a full 20 kilogram backpack. And that's 55 miles for us Americans. Yeah. Without stopping, without taking rest, without eating, drinking, they just went um, That's the most boring way to do math. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it is, right? So their purpose with this was to mass produce it and put um, issue it to the entire German military. That was their goal with it. Ultimately, it ended up being tested on a handful of soldiers and particularly their pilots to let them like fly and fight um, without rest. Uh, and it was slated to be put into mass production, supplied to all German troops, but the war ended before the drug was put into mass production. So... I don't know how that would have gone if they had gotten all their soldiers hopped up on this cocktail, which, I mean, I imagine it drops your life expectancy pretty strongly. Uh, One article I read said that it was monstrously addictive. Big surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was an anecdote uh, on one article I read that said early when they were testing methamphetamine, um, they were in a skirmish against the British, and Churchill basically said, we'll just wait them out. In 12 hours, they're going to have to rest, and that's when we will uh, do our counterattack. That's the most British response ever. Oh, we'll just we'll just <laughs> queue until the tide. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't work because they were all high on meth, and after 12 hours, they were still going strong, and they lost this battle because the Germans just kept going. They were still thinking of new electropop album concepts. <laughs> <laughs> And so ultimately, like, I don't know how much effect this had on the tide of the war. Um, if they had gotten D9 out in mass production, might have been a big deal. But like, so that was a big super soldier thing that they did. Um, and some of the stuff they were doing in Monster at Kinderheim was like 
um, interrogating Johan under the effect of drugs. So mm-hmm. not a lot of this was put in specifically. I don't know how much like the the magnificent Steiner stuff may have been influenced by drug experimentation with Grimmer. I suspect it was. That's something I get the feeling of, but they didn't go into that in detail. Didn't I read recently that like U.S. soldiers in the Middle East are given some sort of speed as well? Am I remembering something else? I hadn't heard about that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I mean, it seems like once once you have speed, like, you're not going to not give it to the soldiers, right? <laughs> yeah. We, we give it to truckers to keep them awake. Yep. We do? Yeah, trucker speed at gas stations. It's for truckers to avoid nodding off while they're driving. Oh, my gosh. Is that an add-on we can use in Euro Truck Simulator? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you'll have to find that out for yourself. <laughs> I bet someone has modded that shit in. <laughs> All right. So the last of my research on these super soldier stuff. Um, so you've heard of MK Ultra CIA program with all sorts of drugs and mind control and hypnosis and all stuff they were doing. That is, of course, the one thing here that I have heard of. Okay. <laughs> so... It's interesting. I kept Googling and looking for Soviet super soldier programs, Soviet hypnosis programs, Soviet um, mind control programs. And damn near every article that I found was about stuff that the CIA was doing. And then they also said, but of course, the Soviets were doing much of the same thing. With little to no detail on exactly what they were doing, but loads of detail on the shit the CIA was doing. So they had these programs. Um, one was called the big influential one that people have heard of is MK Ultra, mm-hmm. um, and a big part of that was using drugs to force confessions in interrogations, um, and that's something that they did in Monster. Um, Johan was uh, at one point they talked about him being kept on sleeping pills, and after that they had that tape of him being interrogated under drugs, um, and he's just sort of not fully lucid, barely able to answer questions, um, but that lines up with stuff that was actually done with um, LSD and other drugs, uh, which were used to sort of weaken the will. They were used as like truth serums. And another part of MKUltra that happened, and I don't know how effective it was, and the Soviets also did this, was using hypnosis for the same kind of reasons, to weaken the will. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also where we get ideas of like sleeper agents, where people get like programmed as a Soviet soldier and then sent back to the US, and then they can be like activated with a code word. That kind of thing came out of these declassified documents about what the CIA was doing um, and that they believed that the Soviets were doing the same. And I, do you remember, Ryan, I seem to recall Franz Bonaparte doing some hypnosis stuff with kids. He would like hold his hand out in front of their face and like manipulate them somehow. Hmm, I miss that. Okay. I was just thinking of, um, this is, I remember that. This is stupid as shit, but Captain America, the, the movies. Yeah, I've been thinking about Captain America the whole time. <laughs> yeah, and how uh, Winter Soldier is like programmed with you know those like complex Russian phrases or whatever, and he's yes. like activated by those. And uh, it it's interesting. Like um, people seem to be pushing back lately on the idea that superheroes are basically like a white supremacist mythos, but I think it says something that one of the most popular American superheroes came out of this super soldier program and the other super soldier programs were basically like white supremacist programs. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But anyway. So like I mentioned, um, 
I couldn't find much about explicitly Soviet programs. It's all just like CIA stuff. One extremely nebulous exception, and this is one of my favorite things that I found doing research for this. There's this book, ostensibly, called The Secret Weapon of the Soviets, and it was written by an American historian called Jeff Strasberg. Um, so all I could find about this book was secondhand accounts. So not the book itself, not any like actual review about it, but the secondhand accounts claim that it describes... Americans who came upon Nazi laboratories and in those Nazi laboratories, like after the war, when they were clearing everything out, they found bodies of Soviet soldiers that the Nazis had been experimenting on, dissecting, vivisecting. And those Soviet soldiers had metal prostheses. Their arm and leg bones had been replaced with steel. And even in one case, a guy had metal ribs. And so- So they wolverine them. Yeah, this claim is that the Soviets had somehow discovered and to some extent implemented a sort of metal-to-bone grafting technology. And the people that it worked on were able to then, you know, be functional people and act as soldiers with, like, metal bone replacements. Man, so did <laughs> did Marvel come up with anything? I, I know, right? <laughs> now, the problem with this is that neither the book or the author seem to actually exist. All I could find was vague references from weird and not at all like credible looking websites um, to this book and what the book supposedly says, and both talked about metal limbs being these Soviet projects. I suspect that the story is completely made up, that this is some kind of meme or creepypasta thing that made its way around the internet. Yeah, I'm trying to look for it as well. But yeah, it's something that I found a couple instances of, of Soviets using super soldiers being created with metal limbs. There's Stalin's secret weapon, but that is not the same thing. No. By a completely different guy, and it's about chemical weapons. Yeah, I found that as well. That's interesting. That's like, um, what was that? Uh, Reminds me of um, Kingsman with the... Oh, I haven't seen that. I should, I should watch that. The first one, there's like the... So there's Samuel L. Jackson. He's the bad guy. And then um, his lackey, she's a double amputee mm -hmm. on on her legs and she's her prostheses are like um swords so and she uses them to fight and it makes for really cool like creative fight scenes yeah that sounds fucking awesome <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool <laughs> it's worth a watch i i was thinking of uh that legend about the game polybius do you know what i'm talking about not sure. Mm -hmm. It was supposedly an arcade game um, created by the CIA <laughs> that okay. was like came out of the MK Ultra program. And it basically was supposed to be designed to like like fuck people up mentally and like program them and stuff. Wow. Um there was some like mini documentary that I watched about it. It was really interesting. It Almost certainly doesn't exist, but uh, a lot of people will swear that it does. And people have, like, made uh, an actual version of it based on, like, all of the legends about it. <laughs> Interesting. Someone even, like, did a FOIA request. Like, hey, did you ever make a game called Bollybius? <laughs> <laughs> See if they can get some declassified documents. And they got they got nothing, so. Oh. <laughs> um, oh, okay. It apparently influenced... The movie The Last Starfighter, if you guys know that one. Not familiar. Oh, that it's a great 80s movie. Uh, 
it's about a guy who plays this arcade game that's a recruiting tool by basically like alien uh an alien military like alien space force and uh gets recruited into their uh starfighter program it was cool um i would recommend that one but anyway uh all we have left is the very depressing yeah how about child experiments let's, one let's talk more about the actual show um and yeah. then maybe we can come back to this yeah Yeah, so now now we're getting into the latter half, so we can start getting more spoilery. Uh, so if you want to watch the show and not have the mystery of it ruined for you, uh, go ahead and turn this off now, and you can come back to it after you've watched 74 episodes of an anime. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, there's there's like some stuff that you know I was confused about that I was hoping we could work through. The first one that I was really wondering about was, like, why, like, we find out that it was Anna slash Nina, um, not Johan, that actually saw the Red Rose massacre. Right. So I guess my biggest question is, like, why did Johan go crazy over that and not Anna? Was that, like, explained in the story and I missed it, or? Do you remember that? So there was a time where they were confronting each other and like Nina was in the process of remembering that. Yeah. Nina was like, you integrated the story that I told you as if it were your own history. She told Mm -hmm. that to Johan. Remember? Mm -hmm. And I think Nina had just had a defense mechanism and shut down completely. Yeah. I I don't know if I would say Nina came away not having gone crazy. (laughs) She suppressed everything. Yeah. Yeah, whereas, like, I think Johan just, like, integrated that into his uh, sense of self, I guess, which was triggered by his mom originally choosing to let him go. Yeah, that that seemed to be the thing that put Johan off the deep end. That's what was, we talked about. The only thing that I could figure was, you know, Johan's whole philosophy is, like, the only reason I'm alive is because I was chosen by fate. Like, the whole rooftop game thing. And there was that ambiguity of whether their mother knew which child she was giving up because they were both dressed the same. And I have to think that based on like Johan believing that he's only alive due to fate, he probably thought that his mother didn't know whether it was him or not when she chose someone to give away. Right. And so, I mean, I, I guess I could see how, I, I could see how that would fuck someone up, but it did seem more like that wasn't the trigger for his violence as much as the massacre that he was didn't actually see. <laughs> My impression was that when he was sort of first pushed to away by his mom, um, that sort of led to a crisis of. Identity. I mean, identity is a big theme in this, but I think it's that exact thing. Like, which one of us did she really not want? Which one of us was she trying to get rid of? Um, And so that left him open at that point. Um, He didn't have the active trauma of then going to the Red Rose Mansion, but he was sort of in this 
still traumatized state um, and just like open to suggestion. And then when Nina or Anna at that time came back and explained what had happened, uh, for whatever reason, the mental state that Johanna had been left in um, left him more able to sort of adopt those or appropriate those experiences as his own rather than treating them as, you know, his sister's experiences as he should have or, you know, normally would have. So I guess that's my impression is that the mother pushing him away led to like a really influx mental state. And then when Anna came back, it just, he went from there. It took it as his own and it went downhill. I guess that is a thing that can happen. Like if someone is like in a particularly traumatic part of their life and they hear a story from someone close to them, they might think that they were involved in it, even if they weren't. I th- I, I'm pretty sure that's happened to me before. Memory's not reliable. Right. Mem- mm-hmm. Memory is not reliable. You can, you know, like you've heard of false memories, right? Mm-hmm. Where somebody tells you something, um, then a little bit later, you will integrate it into your memory as if it happened. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll say, oh, yeah, that happened to me. Especially if you, like, tell someone else's story as your own. Mm-hmm. You eventually, like, it, it just becomes, like, something that happened to you. Yeah. So I, I think it's a false memory kind of thing. But, like, and Tori and I have talked about this. You don't really see much of Johan. You don't really know much about Johan's, like, behavior. General True. Like, com- comportment before um, before this moment happens of, of the mother choosing which one to relinquish. We don't really know what Johan was like before that, right? Yeah, you get them as a ba- like babies, these twin babies in a crib, and then you get them, right. their mother pushing one of them away. Mm-hmm. Like, that's and, the whole... And you see Johan, like, scared there in that image, and then the next thing that you see is Johan in the room, wait, holding the book, waiting for Anna to come up the stairs, and there, already, you see the look in his eye that he has for the entirety of the series that like controlled um i wouldn't say malicious but creepy smile (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, that like the half open eyes yeah yeah Yeah. um i guess the other thing is like he i mean because the mother was trying to pass them off as one child he like didn't really have an identity mm -hmm. she was like she she had already chosen anna or Nina, as her child. And we talked about that too. Yeah. Like, why Why have them dress, how I have them both dress up as girls, why not have them both dress up as boys? Right. Mm-hmm. She was clearly trying to give the impression that she only had one child with her, presumably to hide, attempt to hide from the Czech secret police. Yes. But she then chose to hide them that way by dressing them both as girls, which, yeah, it's an interesting choice. I, I had forgotten that he read the um, storybook in between. Like, while Anna was gone, he mm-hmm. had the book in his arms when mm-hmm. she came back. So clearly he had read it at that point. So I think this, like, mother pushing him away thing, crisis of identity, he then read the storybook and sort of integrated that into his psyche. And what the monster does in the storybook is take other people's identities. Yeah. So maybe that's what he did there. He had been sort of profoundly influenced by this storybook. And then when Anna comes back and tells her story, um, he takes that actively as his own. And it's not like he doesn't live as her <laughs> parts in the future. So. Yeah. And weren't those books, like, 
meant to kind of alter the mental state of the children reading them? Like, wasn't that the whole point of those book reading sessions? I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. So, like, he was in a fragile state, very Mm -hmm. fragile mental state, okay? His sister's been taken away. He's just sitting there wondering if that would have been him. And then he has this book, latches onto it in his very fragile mental state, and that, like, just fills in the cracks of where he's broken a little bit, and... Um, I guess he just <laughs> rolls with that for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Until he sort of wakes up partway through and decides uh, he's changing his path. And they sort of get their memories back. Nina and Johan start, I think they both had a bunch of things suppressed or something. Because there's a while that Nina was worried, like, what if Johan is missing this one part of experience? Or what if he has this one memory that I don't have? Um, and so she's not sure, like, how much Johan knows or remembers from their childhood. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely a reveal even to her that she was the one who saw the massacre. Like, yeah, it wasn't just Johan that didn't, wasn't aware of that. Um, one thing I just remembered that I was watching, like right before we started was, um, a video essay that I have linked in the, in the doc, um, that I would recommend people to watch if they are confused about the show at all. I think it explains a lot of stuff and it's very good. But um, one of the things that the person mentioned was the, I, I think it was Chapik, but maybe I just have that guy's name in my head because it's the easiest one to remember. But uh, he's, he says that at Kinderheim, they wanted to know how to create someone who wouldn't be uh, engulfed by darkness and could overcome hatred and nihilism. And he's telling this to Grimmer. Right, yeah. And Grimmer says that like love is the thing that can prevent that but and i think i see nina as like less broken than you two seem to um so i might be wrong about this but it seems like nina was the successful example of someone who was not engulfed by darkness yeah that's true but at the same time like since she was the one who was given up by her mother that kind of undermines the answer that grimmer gave that it's love that prevents that because she was like the less loved child, if you go by yeah. her mother making an intentional choice like that. Yeah, we when we were talking about that, we always thought that like, or my thought was, I remember telling you that um, the mom sent Nina because Nina would be able to better handle whatever was going to happen to her there. Oh, did they did they say that specifically in this in the show? I kind of remember that, but I don't think they did. No. Th- I think that was that was just a thought that I had. Okay. Um, do you remember talking about that? Remember? I remember talking about it. I don't think it was said uh, explicitly anywhere. Yeah, I think that was just our you know, or my supposition um, mm-hmm. about you know maybe why the mother chose to send um, Nina because again we don't know um, yeah what they were like before that pivotal moment happened. Yeah. One thing I was thinking of is. Um, in terms of like identities and receiving love, like Johan never had that. And then as a child, he went around the whole time, like killing their foster parents and stuff. Like he would always reject the caretakers that he found, you know? Um, but Anna didn't. And she was trying to live and enjoy with a family, right? And yeah. so after like the murder of the parents that sort of, set off the whole 
narrative of the show, like the um, the Lieberts. Yeah, the Lieberts. Was it the Lieberts? No, it was. It, it was. was. Yeah, that was oh, okay. Okay. Johan was shot at that point, and then the so tw- many dead parents. <laughs> <laughs> the twins escaped, but somehow after that, Anna ended up with another family, and Johan mm-hmm. didn't. Johan went on. But Johan knew where Anna was, right? She, he knew to track her down on 18th birthday. But at that point, Johan was going around rejecting all the, the people that cared for him, all the identities. He never took any names as his own. Uh, he talked about that with Tenma, like right when they first met, like Johan goes, um, Johan, that's a name I have gone by. Like, and he lists a few others. Like, it's not his really. He hasn't um, internalized it. Anna did the opposite. She had this new family that she was able to stay with and the the Fortners, and she took the name and identity of Nina as her own. Yeah, I remember her specifically saying, like, my name's not Anna, it's Nina. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Johan never did that. Um, And so, like, with regard uh, to, like, love allowing you to overcome, Nina had that love, and she was willing to accept it, and she took the identity, she took the name, um, and was able to overcome that way. She had that the parents and the the support and the love. Johan always rejected it, and so he never. I mean, he never gave them a chance to overcome. I mean, he didn't want to. I guess that sort of like pushes the mystery back a step because they both essentially had the same opportunities for being loved, but Johan, for whatever reason, rejected it. Yeah. And Nina did not. So then the question becomes, why did he reject it? I think it's the storybook that he had sort of taken on as his only, like, foundation. You know, the the monster in that went around um, taking on an identity, taking on a name for a bit. And then he would always end up eating the person that he had um, lived in, you know, and destroying it and moving on to another one. Did Do you remember if Nina read that book? Like, as a child? She had, because she was familiar with the book, remember? And it, like, triggered okay. her memory. Yeah, too. and she, like, passed out when she first saw it. So she she had seen it and was familiar with it, but she hadn't decided to live it the way that Johan did. Yeah, I guess I guess trying to figure it out any further would just be, like, how do humans develop <laughs> <laughs> personalities and ideologies and understanding of the world, which is a big question. So is there any other parts of the story that you wanted to specifically cover? Oh, that's such a hard question. There's, yeah, there's so many things. Bonaparte is a really interesting character to talk about. The biggest one, I guess, is the conflict between Tenma and Johann's philosophy of all lives being equal. Um, well, I guess there's there's a three-way conflict. All lives are equal. All lives are equal only in death, and all lives are not equal from Ava. Yeah, Ava. It seems that... Like, Johan says that, like, that all lives are equal only in death. Um, I don't know. Like, his original motivation, at one point, you have a scene where he's a child. And he goes, I want to be the last person standing in a, a wasteland of a world or something. And that seems to be his mm-hmm. original motivation is and why he, like, starts the, the criminal syndicate or whatever he does um, and gets all these subordinates so that he can just go and destroy everyone that knows about him and then seems to want to just, like, kill wildly and massively and be the last one standing. Mm-hmm. And then he changes his mind and wants to have the perfect suicide. But either way, he views himself as the sort of centerpiece. So, yeah, I think he definitely views himself as in some way superior, but he also doesn't value his own life. 
because he encourages Tema to kill him and he walks along the edge of the, the building playing with the kids and would be okay with falling. Like, yeah. Yeah, I guess the, I mean, the other biggest part of that is the fact that, you know, Tenma was applying his philosophy that all lives are equal when he saved Johan. But at the same time, it was just fate that Johan arrived to his hospital, first of all. Uh, yeah. And before the whatever statesman guy was, uh, second of all. So, like, he kind of was saved by fate in a way. Yeah, he, he does seem to have that fatalistic attitude where he has these plans, things that he works towards, but ultimately how things turn out, he's just going to point at his forehead and be fine with it either way. Like, he's not mad if he dies. Because that would be fate. Right. I think that's what makes him so unsettling. Yeah. That he's just, like, willing to be killed? Yeah. And that He's just like, okay. Shoot me then. <laughs> that is what it is. Yeah. And it's not even like a like in the aggro like you're too scared to do it kind of way, you know, like uh, like Roberto. No, it's it's just complete acceptance. Yeah. Ugh, Roberto, don't like Roberto. <laughs> Definitely the most hateable character. <laughs> Can't think of anyone worse than him. <laughs> He's somehow the like an absolute stud though. This piece of man meat that keeps going around and yeah. seducing all the women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess if you were a German guy in the 90s with a mullet, you were just extremely hot or something. Yeah. <laughs> he does that like four different times in the series. Yeah, so he does. He, he can get it, man. Oh, yeah. Potty in the back. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, <laughs> uh, sorry. I'm just looking through my notes and I, I remember this uh, really great comment that I saw on, uh, on that video essay. It was, uh, Johan is a really grim character, but Wolfgang is grimmer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a good pun. I like that. Um, <laughs> I think Lunga is probably my favorite character. Oh, I don't like Lunga. <laughs> How'd you feel about Lunga going through the, the series? I, I'm, I'm with Evie for the most part. That, that essay made me like him more because, it was talking about how like like how he changed even though it was very subtle like i didn't I, I didn't really notice it until the person pointed it out but uh i could see like liking him more on my second watch you know i liked him my first time around so i don't know i guess i'm in the minority why did you not like him Evie? was it cuz he like abandoned his family basically that was like i think that was the main thing i didn't like there was that, but it was it was mostly that I think so it was pretty early on where Lunga was given conflicting evidence mm-hmm. for the setup that he had, um, like for what he had painted Tenma to be. And he just rejected it for so long. And doubled down um, on and I guess that's maybe true. that's that's the identity theme, is that like his identity was tied into his ability to be a very good inspector and to always get his mark and be correct. Yeah. Um, and so to suggest that he was incorrect um, would kind of invalidate the way that he had been living his life and the loss of the relationships that he'd had as a result of living the life that he had. Um, and so I guess maybe in saying that out loud right now, it gives him a more sympathetic look, but I still don't like him. 
Yeah, I guess I, I just don't find him relatable because, you know, he was wrong about something, and that's never happened to me before, so. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had to deal with conflicting information, so I, I feel like I would take it a lot better, you know. <laughs> I think it's just because I, I, I love Tenma. Tenma's yeah. so, he's so likable, and he's so. He's such a sweetie. He's such a sweetie, yeah. And and Lunga's just always on his ass. And I'm just like, Javert, stop. Just leave him alone. <laughs> and he doesn't have a philosophy that I have to disagree with either. I, I agree that all people have equal value. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, easy to get on board with that. Well, and, and his conflict, like you see him just so conflicted about it. And you really you really feel for him. Um and and you know the 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 journey that he goes on isn't so wild or it it doesn't seem so crazy mm-hmm. that he does that. I also kind of got like Hulk vibes from his journey. Like, <laughs> I guess that's more of just being a fugitive, but just him like trying to travel around Germany reminded me of the the Hulk show in a way. Yeah, I can see that. But I guess it is just very similar to the fugitive, but also with. The guy being a, a monster, a green monster with purple pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where do you get all them pants anyway? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> there was, um, I remember I was talking to Tora about just the, um, so you've got the music that sucks you in. You've got the actor, the voice acting that sucks you in. And then you also have, um, the way that the environment is drawn, the attention to detail for that mm-hmm. environment. You know, Tenma is Japanese, so he follows some Japanese, um, what's the word for that? Mannerisms? <laughs> mannerisms, and, yeah. Like cultural mannerisms, whereas like the other individuals do not. And um, I was talking to Tora about it in that um, a lot of the time in anime, you know, you could have Americans in a high school, but they're still following like the Japanese protocols. Like you take the shoes off and you switch to the different <laughs> shoes in the high school, like, and, and all of the students clean in the high school and help. And like, uh, no, that didn't happen in my high school. So, nope. so like, but that I was talking to Tora about how that doesn't happen in monster, the, the way that everything is drawn and done, like down to how the characters interact. It's just, there's no, like they interacted with those Japanese businessmen at one point, and then the bowing happened, and it was like pointed out how yeah. it was different. And I, I don't know how to like grasp what I'm trying to say, but it, it just feels like the dub makes it sound even more extreme too, because they were like, "Oh, domo, domo." <laughs> <laughs> I did notice there was one cutaway scene though, where Nina's talking to like some cafe owner. This was around the like the library arc. And uh, she, like, gives him a slight bow. Oh, did she? When he, like, gives her some information or something. Oh, interesting. So maybe maybe a slip up there. But, yeah, I, I think you're right for the most part. Yeah, I was struck with how accurate it is. Maybe he spent some time in Germany and uh, the Czech Republic when he was on tour as Bob Lennon. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, like, he clearly had done a ton of research. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few interest, like instances that I've heard of where that doesn't quite work right. Like the, the high school ones where they act Japanese comes up. 
Mm-hmm. Um, another one, it, it was Silent Hill 1 or Silent Hill 2. Um, a, a big part of whichever game it was takes place in an abandoned high school. And they'd clearly done a bunch of research and had a bunch of photographs of what the American high schools look like. Um, and everything was like well modeled and rendered to look like an American one with all the references and the chalk looked, I don't know, just like a lot of little things that they had clearly matched their attention to detail. But what they very clearly didn't have reference for was the rooftop. Because at one point you go up to the rooftop and you step out there and it's got a chain link fence around it and benches and it's a Japanese high school rooftop. (laughs) Every time I see that in anime, I'm like, man, I wish my high school had that. It looks fucking (laughs) kick-ass. Yeah. So, yeah, it's neat when you have these, like, um, Japanese creators working off of source material and getting everything, you know, very authentic and right based on their research. And those little slip-ups show that, you know, they're they're just working with what they know um, and rather than from what they've actually seen. Um, and Monster does an exceptionally good job of that, I think, um, which is neat because, you know, there's a lot of fetishization of Japanese culture by the West, mm-hmm. um, Americans, weeaboos, whatever. Even in the even in the series itself. It, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, but then it's interesting to see that um, that eye coming from the other direction, how Japanese people and authors view other cultures, Europe, the West. Um, he got like all the trains right, which is interesting because that's not what Japanese trains look like. But he had clearly gotten right, uh, and that's such an integral part of the Japanese experience. I wouldn't have been surprised if he had like just drawn it to be more like their own, but he didn't. He did it just like a European um, like overnight train would look, and it was cool. Yeah, I have to imagine he must have traveled around that area, right? Yeah, I think so. And like all the architecture is so decidedly local. Yeah, all the stuff that happens in Prague makes me want to go visit Prague. Looks beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have either of you been? Oh, we were talking about this yesterday. Didn't you say you'd been to? You've been to Germany, right? Yeah, I've been to Germany and like passed through Austria, um, but I haven't seen any part of the Czech Republic directly. But as far as like the German parts looked, I, I mean, yeah, you have these green forests and um, old architecture along with modern buildings. Yeah, like very exactly what I was expecting to see. I especially loved that uh, the couple episodes that were in that remote village where Tenma was hiding out for a little bit. With the village doctor? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I liked that. Very pretty scenery. That was Oh my god. That was one of the episodes where I was like, okay, I'm definitely gonna like pay attention to the scenery in this show. Oh my gosh. And Dieter? Dieter. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Yep. What a wonderful little cherub. <laughs> he was so good. And he was good for Tenma. Like it was good that he um he was there around with Tenma. I think he helped Yeah, do you think Tenma might have like actually killed Johan if Dieter wasn't around? It's funny because like that's what that's what like the final culmination thing is. They're at the, they're in a standoff because Johan has Dieter, right? Yeah, and it's trying to force him to shoot him. And ah, uh, I think I think Dieter helped him stay sane and hold to his morals. I think helped Tenma. Yeah, and it like there's a few times where both Nina and Dieter say something along the lines of, "We have to go and stop Tenma. He's gonna kill Johan. He's gonna become a murderer." And they are mm-hmm. sort of following him around, trying to save his, I don't know, his soul or something. like just Hold him accountable. Yeah. Prevent him from becoming the thing that he's 
it, that's such an interesting conflict between like, I'm now responsible for putting a murderer in the world, but I don't want to become a murderer to stop that, but I have to. So Tenma's like right. in turmoil. Yeah, but he also shot Bobbert. He did. He didn't kill Bobbert. Yeah, he but thought he thought he, he killed Bobbert. That's true. That's true. Roberto. He thought he thought he killed Roberto. I don't know why, but I maybe I just hate him more. I I think I <laughs> viewed that as like less tragic than if he had killed Johan. Like, oh, it's just Roberto. That's fine. He can die. <laughs> <laughs> All lives are equal except for <laughs> everyone <Yeah>. else in Roberto. <laughs> How did you feel about that? That like it it wasn't Tenma who killed, well, who quote unquote killed Johan, but like who sh- shot Johan to kill him? Yeah, it was Vim's father. Yeah, I guess I thought it was it was good that Tenma didn't kill Johan. I think that would have fucked up the story and the philosophy. But having some random guy, I guess he's not totally random, but kind of. Until I like thought about the ending more, I was I was a little pissed at first. I was like, "Why is this like fucking rando guy like the most important character in the end?" <laughs> like the fuck, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that was just my initial emotional reaction. That, that was something I definitely wanted to discuss with you too. Is uh, what did you think about the ending? Like, what do you think they were going for with that? Do you think it worked? Because that's always a controversial one when talking to monster fans, whether they liked the ending or not. Yeah, I mean, it did seem like things were dragging out a little bit um, toward the end. But I, I think part of that was just the fact that I was like watching it all in a row. I think if I... If I were like following this as like a TV show that came on weekly, it would have felt <laughs> a lot different. Um, but I think at a certain point I was like, "All right, well, I know something's going to happen at the end, so let's let's get it over with." Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I guess, listeners, if you are going to watch this, I I would recommend not binging it all at once unless you are extremely into it. Um, you know, I, I liked it. The reason I actually, I never answered the question, but uh, the reason that I started watching it is because I saw this random anime nerd on uh, TikTok saying, like, these are the only 10 out of 10 series that I've ever seen. Um, one was the Tatami Galaxy. One was Monster. And there was, like, two others, I think. But uh, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll check those out. And so Monster was the first one that I started. Oh, cool. And, uh Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I watched it probably over a period of, like, two weeks. I was just, like, watching it from the time I got off work until almost the time I went to bed, like, every day. <laughs> so, yeah, I would I would pace myself more if I had to rewatch it because yeah, I think things will feel, like, if you're not enjoying or engaging with the development of each character instead of just following the story... I think that's the big problem is like I was I was just uh, interested in the story and not the character development as much. And so it felt slower because it was I mean, it's a heavily character focused series. So, the, I mean, the story is a little complex, but it definitely could be told in like 13 episodes, I think. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about the ending? I can't I can't exactly remember 
what I told you about feeling my feelings about the ending, but like thinking about it in retrospect, I was really angry about Grimmer's death scene in particular. Mm, yeah. Because there was no time to process it. But you could argue that the way that was done is the similar way in which um, the alcoholic father shot Johan. Like they were just things that happened because um, these characters don't exist in a vacuum and there's other things that are going on around them. Mm-hmm. Um, just because they're the main ones that we're following doesn't mean that there aren't other people who live in the universe that can enact change. <laughs> that, that being Grimmer's death or um, Johan's almost death. So I guess I feel less angry about it now, but it was just the way that Grimmer was developed was so slow and beautiful. And like the way that his death was done was just, it felt disrespectful. I was mad, but um, I, I agree. He was my favorite character, I think. And uh, and with with respect to the ending, uh, Johan and, and Nina's mom gives ten mother names. We don't hear that. Mm-hmm. And and Tura and I were talking. We we're pretty sure that probably so Tenma tells Johan that his mother loved him. For sure. I remember that. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. we are pretty sure probably that Tenma tells Johan what his true name is, I guess. Yeah. And, and, um, but I don't know that we actually, I don't think we actually hear that, but I think Tenma does tell him. And then the next time we see him, he's gone. What if his real name is Kenzo? (laughs) (laughs) It was me all along. (laughs) Kenzo um, Liebert. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know. I, I don't remember feeling angry about it. It's it's just, <laughs> to be quite literal, it's a window of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And you, just like you don't know how Johan was before his mother relinquished Nina to the mansion, you don't know how he's going to be after. You don't know what he's going to do. I mean, everything's in rose colored glasses at that point. Like you see Nina vibing, enjoying her life, hanging out with friends. Oh, whoa, Tenma's here. He's back from his doctors (laughs) without borders. Like, Mm -hmm. let's go hang out. Like it's, (laughs) it's very slice of life at that point. But, um, I don't know. I don't know what Johan's going to go on to do. Like maybe, maybe he'll just live a normal life. Maybe he won't. I think the ending was successful at killing Johan's fantasy so that like the being yeah. alone at the end of the world is not a viable option for him anymore. He's been in that. And the perfect suicide is also not an option anymore because he's not a monster without a name who can delete all reference mm. to himself. He has a name. Mm-hmm. Now. He has a name. And I, t- yeah, at one point Tenma goes like, um, your mother loved you, you know, and he, she gave you names. And then it doesn't tell us what the name was, which is a good choice because if they actually gave the actual name, then there's a lot of people that just like wouldn't like the name and it wouldn't land as well. But whatever the name was, Johann was told it, and that ended his ability to cling to the storybook narrative for his life, I think. But then he just leaves, and he's still as dangerous as he was before, by all accounts. So like a lot of people are frustrated with that because you just let the psychopath back out. Like, but what did are you, you? doing? Yeah, and so, I mean, they leave it so open-ended. Um, I recall from earlier watches that I thought the ending was really good, and it resolved well, and I was happy with it. And I was less so 
this time around. I understood it better, I think, but I was less satisfied. And you told me I would be satisfied with it. I think part of it was like, sometimes I'm like, sometimes I really like reading into subtext and figuring out what Orca's trying to say. And sometimes I'm like, all right, just tell me what you're trying to say. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I was, I was a little bit hoping that they would like engage with that question more directly of like, well, what is like, what are the choices? Like what are the potential outcomes of letting Johan live or killing him? You know? But an- another thing in what you were just saying that I was thinking about was like, According to Johann's philosophy, you know, the only reason that he was alive is because he's chosen by fate, blah, blah, blah. Um, and in the case of the the perfect suicide, the fa- I mean, the fact that it failed kind of says that he was chosen by fate to, like, not be, like, a nihilistic piece of shit, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, fate, fate has basically told him to grow up and like find a reason to live and not kill a bunch of people constantly. Yeah. I don't know. You never follow Johan. No. He's always secondary. That's true. You only really see him when he's doing evil shit. Right? <laughs> he's around for a bit like partway through when you have um Hans Georg Schubert and his son and like that whole arc of the legitimate versus illegitimate son and getting the inheritance and all that. He's around at the school a decent amount there. I think that's the most that he's ever like part of the normal narrative. But you never follow him. You no. always follow Nina or Tenma or the psychiatrist. He's never doing slice of life stuff. He's only doing sinister, evil, supervillain stuff. Mm-hmm. Like having, yeah. having evil conversations and looking at people in an evil way. Yeah, spying on people. Oh, that's normal. Maybe he's eating at a cafe. No, no. He's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the uh, one of the video essays that I saw, I, I think I stopped it like halfway, but it was like, why Johan is such a good villain? And it was like, the person was just like, Johan is such a good villain because he's just so evil. He's just like, he's just bad. And like, he that makes him cool. He's like, so evil. Like, uh, okay, cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your essay, I guess. <laughs> I think he's an interesting villain because, and and I think Nina said it. I think Nina said he doesn't want anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you're just always several steps behind Johan, and you never follow him. He just shows up, and I and I think that's what makes him so scary. You see the outcome mm-hmm. of things that he does. Mm-hmm. But you hear about that second hand a lot of the time, and every time you see him, he's just got that same face that he did when Nina walked up the stairs to talk to him after she'd been at the Red Rose Mansion. Mm-hmm. That that very unsettling calm. Yeah, and um, and I think that's why he's thousand meter stare. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's what makes him part of what makes him such a good villain is that he's just so unreadable, detached. And and yeah. inscrutable, yeah, 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 inscrutable. At, at one point, one thing that really confused me, like every time I watch it, is what his actual feelings are about things mm-hmm. early in the series. Um, later on, you sort of get that he's going for this perfect suicide thing, and you can get a better idea of what he's going for because the characters actually try to explain that. But back when they like have that 
split personality reveal thing, which never really pans out, but everyone believes it, which is interesting in its own right. Um, but at one point Nina says like, he doesn't want anything. And right after that, she says something like he's hurting. Mm-hmm. But when she said that she was under the impression that there was like a normal Johan under there who's trapped and afraid. And then the monster Johan, the other Johan, but she was wrong about that. There is only one Johan. So what is he actually feeling about all these things? And you never really get that. It's always left ambiguous. And so many people are wrong about his mental state when they try to give explanations about him. Yeah. He never has that villain's monologue sort of thing. Yeah. He never tells you. There were like some very subtle cues in the the good video essay that I watched um, that that person brought up. And they were basically talking about how like he he's like completely anhedonic, like he experiences no pleasure in anything. And he showed the example of um, Johan being at this cafe that has like a world renowned cup of tea or coffee. I can't remember which one it was, but he drinks it and just has like zero reaction to it. So like even if they showed like his daily life, he would probably just be like robotically doing things that he needs for, you know, his subsistence and then whatever, like evil supervillain plans that he has. <laughs> so like it, it's almost like there is nothing else to show. Yeah, that's true. I got the impression that he did get something out of manipulating people. Like when he gets 511 Kinderheim to burn to the ground, everyone's fighting and killing each other. And he sits there on his little throne, smiling down at them. Mm-hmm. I got the impression that that's about the only thing that he really feels or cares about and gets any value out of. He does smile there. He gives a reaction and he's he's watching everything burn and he's happy about it, or at least to some extent. I, that was my impression. Yeah, they mentioned a few times like the analogy of a kid like killing ants. And even Roberto says that explicitly. Yeah. It feels like he does get some satisfaction out of doing that, like mm-hmm. messing with the ant line. So I, I don't know if I would say it's completely anhedonic. He's got something there. It's bad, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think, at least for me, with respect to the ending, um, I was talking to Tura about it, that I just kept waiting for Johan to pop up. Yeah. And it, and it, and it <laughs> like, distracted my experience of the ending. So I definitely want to watch it again, because now I'm not going to be waiting for Johan to show up. I know when he's going to come. and. Um, so I guess that was the only thing that was frustrating for me. I think that happened to me as well, now that you mention it. Yeah, and it, it was hard to pay attention, and there were so many things going on, and it was hard to pay attention to them, because I'm just like, when's our boy gonna pop out? You know, when's he gonna show up? Yeah, the whole Ruinheim arc at the end. I think it's also like a, you know, an, an expectation from the fact that it's an anime. You're like, oh man, when whenever Johan does finally show up, it's gonna be something epic, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like an anime. <laughs> And it's anticlimactic, yeah. Right. Which is a completely valid choice, but if you're looking for something else, then it can be very frustrating. Only other thing I wanted to add here is I earlier mentioned some other research topics that I did, um, and I don't want to get properly into them, but I know that some viewers might have, like, or listeners may have caught on to that and, like, where, when are they going to come back to it? <laughs> the stuff was on experiments that are done on children. Um, one of them was about... Uh, like a re-education detention center um, in Eastern Germany. Then there was one study about getting children in like oppositional groups that hate each other um, to reduce that intergroup friction. And then the last one is about like 
infants that are denied um, interaction with caregivers or other people and how that extremely harms their development. If you're interested to read more about that stuff, it's miserable, by the way. Yeah. But there are links on the bottom of the 511 Kinderheim page on the Monster Wiki that go into a bunch of this stuff. So, like, this is, you can do your own reading and <laughs> do your own crying about this one because I, I don't really want to talk about it. <laughs> I also, uh, I converted your uh, doc to a Google Doc and I will um, include it in the show description so that people can read what you've written down about it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, let me put a couple of links in there then because I'm missing one at the end just so that people have sources to go to. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can I can paste the new version back in. Well, I think that was a great discussion. Now I'm wondering if I should read another monster as well. Yeah, I think there is a translation of it around. Um, it's quite extensive. It goes over all the main characters in the original story and gives more detail on them. Um, and it's apparently canon. So if you're interested in the world and you want to learn more and the background stuff, some of it's a little wacky, like Franz Bonaparte brainwashing his dad and removing his name. But a lot <laughs> of it is gives like continuity and context to a lot of stuff that happened in the story. So it's worth a read. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, like, like I said, I definitely recommend this. I will probably rewatch the whole thing at some point in my life. There's definitely like nothing else like it in the anime genre that I can really think of. Yeah. It is very unique in that. I, I was, I will admit, I was hoping that it would be more of a medical drama when I first started watching it. <laughs> yeah. The medicine really falls off. <laughs> but, uh, cause I was, I, I've always thought that would be a good, that could be a good thing for anime to try as a medical drama. But apparently, uh, Urasawa's editor did not agree with me. So that's probably why they don't have those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, is there anything either of you would like to plug? Don't think so. We are going to move soon. I, I don't have any active projects right now. I talked about some stuff in the earlier episodes, but that's all gone on the back burner. Yeah. So. Are you moving anywhere cool? I'm going to Georgia. Oh, so no. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> It'll be interesting. Uh, get to see the South. Yeah. All right. Well, Tura, Evie, thank you so much for coming on. I had a great time. Yeah, we did too. Uh-huh. If you two ever watch another anime together, I would love to have you back on to talk about that one. That would be cool. We'll let you know what we've seen and see if you want to come chat about it. Yeah. Maybe we'll co- coincidentally watch another 10-year-old uh, anime <laughs> at some point in the yeah. future. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Well, uh, thank you for coming on again. And uh, oh, one, one thing I have to mention, I since I've had a hard time finding guests, everyone is like trying to get back to their lives or – finishing up school. Um, I have obviously not been able to produce new episodes, but last week, uh, as I briefly mentioned, I made a video on the basics of anarchist political economy, and that is now up on YouTube on the Neighbor Science channel. Um, I started like a little playlist called Neighbor Science TV, and uh, I'm planning to do some other ones. I started working on uh, one about nuclear power, so look forward to that you're doing a little mov as well right a little what now mov oh amv yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's the one yeah 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 i started a, a monster amv actually it, to the song a sonnet to both ugly and murderous by page 99 which if you've never heard that song uh i would recommend listening to it because it like monster is unlike anything you've ever heard before it's it's crazy and i mean that literally it's crazy <laughs> um but yeah, 
So look forward to that. That'll that'll probably take me a while too, um, but it'll be fun. All right, that's that's all I have. So uh, thank you again for listening. Bye bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our other episodes on every podcast platform, including Spotify and YouTube. We would love it if you left a nice review on iTunes, which helps people get the show in their recommendations or tell your friends if you're cool enough to have those. We have a low-key merch shop at Teespring with some cool shirt designs. I know it's not really good to use them, but until there's significant interest in merch, it would be pretty impractical to do a run of merch from a proper printer. So if people are interested, let us know. You can follow us on Twitter at NeighborSciPod. If you want to support the show and help pay our producer, we have a Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash NeighborScience. Our producer for some of our episodes is Casino Socks. You can check out his music at soundcloud.com slash casino socks. And finally, you can check out our website, neighborsciencepodcast.com, which has tags on all our episodes. So if you're looking for a particular subject, it's much easier to find on there than just scrolling through the entire list of episodes in your podcast app. And thanks again for listening. Say-